Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. There's a story told about how Hugh Latimer, and it's probably not a name that rings a bell to you unless you're somewhat of a history buff, you might know the name, but Hugh, Hugh Latimer once preached before King Henry VIII. Have you ever heard of King Henry VIII? He was the real big king, loved his food. Henry was greatly displeased by the boldness in the sermon that Henry Latter, or Hugh Latimer preached and ordered Latimer to preach again on the following Sunday and to apologize for the offense that he had given. Think about that. King Henry, present at Hugh Latimer's church service in England. <clears throat> the presence of the King of England is there. And Hugh Latimer preached boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ to the offense of many. And the king sent word to Hugh Latimer, you preach again next Sunday and you apologize for your offense. The next Sunday after reading his text to the service and those that were present, he began his sermon thusly. Hugh Latimer Dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But consider well, Hugh, Dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully." The gospel is good news to those who hear it because it can set captives free from sin and death. But it is full of offense. Why? Because it draws a line in the sand for you and me. It tells us what God's holy standards are. And it tells us how we fall short of that standard. But it doesn't just leave us there. This is why it's good news. It's good news because there was a man named Jesus who was God in the flesh, who was able to take sin and death upon himself, to take your and my offenses and every offense in human history upon himself on the cross. That's why we call it good news, not because a man lost his life, but because of what he did sets us free when we believe in him. 
but it is so offensive to the one who is deep in the mire and the muck of daily sin. Don't tell me about my gossiping habit or my addictions, or don't tell me about where I'm failing or falling short. That offends me. You're not my judge. Have you ever heard that? We often preach a gospel that lacks the power of God because we want to tickle people's ears. And when we do that, we take the power out of the holy church that God established through Jesus Christ. Yes, there are many within an earshot of an offensive message of the gospel that will tuck tail and run and go somewhere where people will make them feel better about themselves. Now, this is not one of those places. You will hear encouraging message. You'll hear of the hope of the gospel and the good news. But the gospel that is good news comes at a price. It costs not only Jesus' life, but it requires a sacrifice of us. But see, we're only willing to sacrifice so much. I'll sacrifice up to this point, but don't ask anymore. I'm willing to be all in as long as you don't ask for this thing or that thing to be removed from my life. I'm willing to do this or go there with you. I'm willing, I'm willing to surrender, but not this thing in my life. This is not Esther. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on, a, on a tangent, I guess. Uh, bunny trail. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel of Jesus Christ the apostles' teaching, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul's letters to Romans, the Ephesians, Corinthians, Thessalonica. When you read it, you hear of a people that suffered greatly for the faith. And they counted their suffering as righteousness because they were able to suffer for Christ. When we get a hangnail, we whine and moan and complain Does this glorify God? Consider it all joy, my friends, when you encounter troubles and trials of many kind. For you know it produces endurance. And endurance produces faith. And faith, when fully grown, makes you complete and mature, needing nothing. We have a lot of immature Christians today. And I would say I've been one of those immature Christians a time or two in my life. What does it mean to suffer for Christ? We read in Esther that she was willing to risk it all. You remember back in chapter 4? What happened? Esther was a Jewish girl. No, no one knew her knew of her, except her own family. Her parents weren't living, so her cousin Mordecai adopted her as his own. He was much older and was able to take her under his care. By chance, King Xerxes, king of Persia, the Persian Empire is now the one that's 
in control of the greatest amount of territory. This is now the most powerful kingdom in the world at this point in time. Until the Greeks would come through Alexander the Great and take over. And then the Romans would come and they would take over. But Esther was unknown. But she got chosen to be a part of the king's court, to be a part of the harem, to see if not, she might be worthy enough to become the next queen. Because the first queen displeased the king, so he banished her. And all the women that were chosen throughout the land to be a part of the harem, Esther was chosen to be the next queen. By chance? I don't think so. And then a decree comes down from the king. The king doesn't know that Esther's a Jew. And the king's right-hand man, Haman, who is able to do pretty much anything he wants to within the, within the boundaries the king sets, goes to the king because Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. Everybody else bows down to Haman when he walks by in the streets, but Mordecai won't. He's a jerk. Bow to me, Right? But Mordecai wouldn't bow in front of Haman. Haman was a man of pride and arrogance. And when pride and arrogance rules the soul of an individual, when they see a slight against them or what they perceive as a slight against them, it cannot stand. So Haman goes before the king, and what does he do? He says, listen, these Jewish people throughout our whole empire, they're no good. They don't respect royalty. They don't respect power or leadership or authority of the king. They worship some other god. I think they're a problem. We need to have them exterminated. And the king thought, well, if there's a people that's going to be up against me someday, sure, go ahead, I'll make an edict. And he made an edict or a decree that all the Jews in the land be wiped out of existence. So Haman goes... And he begins to cast lots. You know what that means? It's almost like rolling dice to try to get the right number or pulling a, you know, pulling short straw or whatever. He, uh, he does this, <coughs> and the lot is cast on what day they're going to actually exterminate the Jews. Well, it's almost a year later that this happens. Haman's probably like, oh, why couldn't it have been next week? Mordecai hears about the decree. It's sent out to all the provinces. This is what's going to happen next year. Mordecai starts to weep and, and, and mourn for this. Esther catches wind of it. What are you mourning for? She asks. Send him some clothes to put on. Clean clothes. Get cleaned up. No, I'm not going to. Through him, she tells Esther, he tells Esther, <clears throat> this is what's going to happen. So I want you to go before the king. Maybe he could reverse this ruling. Here's the trouble with that, though, because if she goes before the king without his permission, even as the queen, she could die. No one comes before the king unannounced. And you don't come before the king unless he asks for you. <clears throat> and Esther says, he hasn't even called for me for 30 days. You know he's going to kill me if he doesn't hold out his scepter. 
Mordecai doesn't take kindly to that. And he says, you know, don't think for one minute you'll escape the wrath of the decree that's handed down. You're a Jew too. Your day's coming because the king's decree will get you. But who knows, Esther, maybe, just maybe, you were, be, you were chosen to be queen for such a time as this. And she comes to this place where she says, well, let's fast and pray for three days, and then I'll go before the king. And if I must die, I must die. When was the last time your life was on the line? When was the last time you were asked to give up everything? When was the last time you had to make the most difficult sacrifice in your life that you knew would totally turn your life upside down if you did it in a good way, but you knew it was the right thing to do? Esther was faced with this. She goes before the king unannounced, and by the grace of God, he holds out his scepter. And he says, you can come in. She tells them, tells him he, she wants to have a banquet with him and Haman. She goes through two different banquets. Haman is exposed for the wicked man he is. He's impaled on a pole that he had set up to impale Mordecai on. Some people say, some scholars say it was 75 feet tall. Impaled. Not, some of your versions of Scripture read gallows as if it was a hanging. No, he was impaled on a pole. Do you know what that means? A sharpened pole? It was pretty sadistic and malicious. I mean, cru- cruel and gruesome thing to think about. I don't mean to get real sickening and gross. Read it. Read about it if you want to. It's disturbing. Haman gets killed. And then we come to the place again. Right after Haman's death, the decree is still in existence. You cannot reverse the king's decree. Why? Because the king's decree in Persia, the king was considered divine. And if you're divine, godlike, you don't make mistakes. So what happens? If you don't make mistakes, then the decrees you make will stand regardless of how ill-conceived they were. So there was only one alternative, and it was to make another decree to counter the first decree. And this is where we pick up the story quickly today. I realize time is of the essence. Read along with me, Esther chapter 8. On that same day, the day that Haman was executed, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. Up to this point, Esther had not told King Xerxes how how she was related to Mordecai. The king took off his signet ring. Now, all right. This is my wedding ring. It signifies that I am taken by a woman named Sarah Lee. This signifies who I am and who I'm with. And this is a sacred emblem of the relationship I have with her. The king and most kings in that day and age and even after had a ring 
that had a circle on top with a specific insignia or, or uh, emblem. And it was used to press into wax on a decree to show that it was legally binding because it held the king's insignia and there was only one signet ring. He takes that ring off, which he had taken back from Haman because Haman had had it to be able to conduct all the business in the land for the king. And he gave it to Mordecai. As Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman, and Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's, Haman's uh, property. <laughs> Think about this. Haman hated Mordecai. He wanted him dead. What a cruel twist of fate that Haman's goods and belongings, everything that he was so proud of had gone to the man he hated and wanted dead. Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman, the Agagite, against the Jews. Again, the king held out the golden scepter because she came into his presence yet again without asking. And he's like, no, 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 get up. Quit groveling. I, I stand before me. He held out the golden scepter to Esther. So she rose and stood before him as an equal. That was kind of the symbolism here. He says, get off your hands and feet. Stand before me. You're my wife. You're my queen. Esther said, if it please the king, and if I found favor with him, and if he thinks it's right, and if I'm pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, who ordered that all the Jews throughout the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? The, the decree is still in place. Yes, Haman's dead, but the decree is still in place. Then King Xerxes said to the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. Fine, you can go, you can craft whatever you want to protect the Jewish people, but I can't revoke the first decree. But you can write whatever you want. You can send whatever you want in my name. I trust you. So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officers, the governors and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia, from India and Asia to Ethiopia and Africa. This is how vast the territory of the Persian kingdom was. The decree was written in the scripts and the languages of all the peoples of the empire, including that of the Jews. Now, if you go all the way back and you look at the beginning of the story, when Haman sent out the decree from the king, he only sent it in the Persian language. And unless it was translated for the Jews, they were none the wiser. But what does Mordecai do? He has the decree translated into all the languages of all the peoples that live in all the provinces of Persia, even the Jews. Let nobody be confused about this decree. 
The king, excuse me, the decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Mordecai sent the dispatches with swift messengers who rode on fast horses, especially bred for the king's service, the fastest horses in the land. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. It did not give them authority to go butcher innocent people. It gave them the right to defend their lives because that's how it was going to reverse the first decree. I can't stop the first decree. People will come against you, but when they do, you defend yourselves. Stand up, take arms, fight, protect yourselves. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take their property of their enemies. That sounds brutal. The day chosen for the, this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March the 7th of the next year. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all the people so that the Jews, excuse me, would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So Urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode swiftly on fast horses, bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed at the fortress of Susa, which was the capital city of Persia, where the king's palace was. Then Mordecai left the king's presence, wearing the royal robe of blue and white, which were the national colors of Persia, and the great crown of gold, an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of that land became Jews themselves, of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. Love never gives up even when freedom is on the line. What do we know about this story? How do we close this session or this section of Esther out? Because this is our last sermon in this series. There are two more chapters. I stress to you to read them, chapters 9 and 10 of Esther. You'll see the concluding story there. But today I want us to look at really quickly, love never gives up even when freedom's on the line. Esther's commitment and her persistence for, for the safety of her people wouldn't allow her to give up. And there are two specific ways we can see this in the passage today. The first one is this, for the love of her people. For the love of her people. Esther's boldness to ask for more from the king wasn't due to greed or selfishness or even vengeance. Esther's boldness to come before the king again with another request was out of sheer love. Esther loved her adopted father Mordecai. She loved all the Jewish people spread out through the Persian Empire. And it was Esther's love that pushed her forward with an ever-persisting desire to rescue her people from imminent danger and destruction. We give up too easily. Would you agree with me? I mean, you may not. I, I, I'm over, I may be overgeneralizing. But often in our culture, 
or in multiple cultures, when, when, when the odds are stacked against you, when your back is up against the wall, I often see people just throw their hands up and say, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. I feel like I'm fighting a losing battle. I feel this, I feel that. I see it happening in marriages all the time. I'm just gonna throw my hands up, throw in the towel. I don't love him, I don't love her. She did this, he did that. I see it with addiction. Oh, more than I ever have in my life. Well, I just, I'm gonna give up, I'm gonna give this. I, I, can't, I can't kill this demon inside of me that keeps sucking me into this. Maybe it's a relationship, a broken relationship, not a marriage, but a friendship, a family relationship. Well, I'm just gonna give up, I'm done. And maybe rightly so if God has called you to that, but if he hasn't, if you aren't really wrestling with God on the right decision to make, you're wrestling with the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And you can overcome the enemy only through Christ Jesus who gives you abundant life. Without him, you'll lose the battle every stinking time with addiction, with marriage, with relationships with anything, you'll lose it every time. And too many of us try to fight battles in our lives against these daunting enemies of life that could kill us in our own strength. The true place of complete surrender is I give up to God. God, I'm willing to die if that's what it takes but not my will, your will be done. Well, Brandon, how do you know God's will? Are you in the word of God? The problem is we don't read the word of God enough. You probably wonder, why do you read such long chapters of the Bible? Because, I don't know, do you read it at home? Now, I'm not, it's not story time, it's not Brandon's story time to read you a Bible story, but you have to be in the word. And if you don't understand it, read it with someone who does. We don't have to do this alone. The body of Christ is in place, ordained by God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit to be unified around core principles of faith that drive us deeper into a relationship with God and with each other. This is why Jesus can say the greatest commandments are these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the body of Christ. This is what God looks like. This is what the church should look like. But the enemy... He comes into the midst of God's people and he throws us off with small distractions at first that become big distractions if not dealt with. Just like these, these uh, dandelion, you, we blow them. We, we're blowing weed seeds all over our yard. But the enemy takes these things and makes them look fun and beautiful and oh, just blow it. Just blow it. And we do and we blow it. Why? Because instead of dealing with the problem of sin in our lives, the offensive gospel that we read that says, take it out, 
Quit toying with it. Approach the throne room of God's grace boldly because of what Jesus did for you. Not arrogantly, not pridefully. You can never enter in that way. You have to shed yourself and then you can come with confidence before God. You know because Jesus died to take sin upon himself. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. If you don't live that gospel... You're walking a road to certain destruction. For great is the way and wide is the path that leads to destruction. And many, many people take it. Why? Because it, it, gives, you the, it gives you this picture that it's so much easier. And in an earthly context, taking the wide path that leads to hell is so much easier. Oh, but the path that leads to heaven is narrow, the gate's narrow, and it's hard. And Jesus tells us rightly in Matthew 7, not many people take it. And he doesn't say it matter-of-factly. Yeah, so you could take the wide road or the narrow road. A lot of people go this way and a few people go this way because it's hard. No, it's just like, I think there's a tinge of sorrow in Jesus' voice when he says that. If you take this one, it's narrow, it's hard, it's not going to be an easy walk, and don't believe a gospel or a teaching that tells you differently. If you come to Jesus, you'll become a millionaire. If you have faith enough, if you come to Jesus, all your sickness and wounds will be healed if you just have enough faith. You don't need that medicine, get off of it. If you just had enough faith, God will take care of that problem for you. This is a false gospel. A true gospel is, yes, live by faith, not by sight, and know that it's going to be hard. And this is not the way to win souls, is it? John chapter 6, I mentioned this in the class I'm teaching this morning. Jesus was a master of words. And when he began to amass a huge following... He was walking along one day, and he stops and turns to the crowd, and he says, hey, guys, listen up. Hey, listen up back there. Unless you're willing to drink my blood and eat my body, you can have no part of me. And everybody goes, huh? I'm, I'm sorry. We didn't hear you back here. What was that? Unless you drink my blood and eat my body, you can have no part of me. That's what we thought you said. <laughs> it was fun while it lasted. Thanks for the t-shirt. And they went home. It's not easy. Actually, Jesus promises us certain difficulty. He does. If you read, just go through and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the red letters. Just read the red letters. You'll get through it a bunch quicker if you do. I'm, just, I'm not saying relegate it to just the red letters, but I mean, just take a look at Jesus' words only. Remember, when they hate you, they hated me first. Hey, if you stand for me, 
You're going to be persecuted. Some of you might even die. Count on it. <laughs> Do you live with that gospel? See, it gives a whole new meaning to Luke chapter 9 and in the Matthew, uh, Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, <laughs> you must first deny yourself daily. What does that mean? It means I don't get what I want. Today, my plans are I'm going to go to Mazzanti's and get some beans and cream or Dairy Queen for some of you, whatever. Or I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do that, and we're going on vacation this year, and we've got, we got all these plans. I've got, and I've got my retirement plan, and I've got these cars, and I'm paying on this house, and woohoo, living the dream. And Jesus says, that's not my dream. Huh? But not your, not, not your dream. Oh, so basically what you're telling me, Brandon, I have to give up everything. Yeah. Well, you want me to go sell my house, my car? No, 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 no. If that stuff has a hold on you, if that's what you're living for, you're, you're living for a God that isn't real. We call those idols in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You're living for the next paycheck, the next hit from the drugs you're going to shoot up later on. You're living for the next argument because you just thrive on drama. You're living for the next story you hear so you could tell it to somebody else. And you don't know if it's true or not, but man, it's a good, juicy piece of meat. You know, whatever the case may be, this is the problem that we find ourselves getting sucked into instead of surrendering what I want, denying myself daily, and then taking up my cross to follow him. Uh, you're, yeah, 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 no, 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 take your cross, take my, I'm sorry, what? You want me to deny what I want and to surrender to what you want? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it works. And that's why many don't choose that path. I'll close with this. It's you know, I, I give you the fill in the blanks. I've gone way off script today. Uh, the next one is for protection from the king, because those of you who are type A personalities fill in your blanks here. But let me go. <clears throat> let me go to the to the conclusion here. And for those of you listening online, uh, I apologize. I've completely strayed off topic. But here's the truth of the matter. Um, living a grace-filled life requires sacrifice. We, we think sacrifice is giving an extra $100 to a worthy cause. And, and for some of you financially, that, that, that could be a great sacrifice. But the kind of sacrifice that Jesus talks about in Scripture is everything. It's everything. Why do you think he got super excited and showed his disciples about the woman, the widow, who gave two mites? You know what I'm talking about? The story in the New Testament where Jesus, uh, they're, they're, they're in the temple <clears throat> and they have these coffers or these large cylindrical tubes where you can hear money. And they just, they, they had metal money back in the day, precious, you know, silver, 
gold coins. A mite was made out of copper, much like our pennies are today. But if you take a, take a penny and cut it in half, then you have two mites. That's pretty much the size of them. And, and Jesus calls his disciples around, them, around him and he says, check this out. I'm paraphrasing here. Check it out on your own if you want the exact, exact version of it. Um, but he said, come here, check this out. You see all these other people? I mean, they're bringing bags of money in. And when they drop it in, you can hear clank, 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 clank. Oh. They're only given a small portion of what they have out of the abundance that they have. You see that woman over there, those two, those two small pieces of metal in her hands, those two mites. Nobody can hear the clang of those over the sound, over the sounds of the temple. I'll tell you what, what she's given is amazing. She's given everything she has. See, Jesus delights in those who are willing to give it all, not just in abundance. And I'm afraid in our culture, in our churches, that we've gotten too accustomed to bringing a little bit out of the abundance we've been blessed with. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about life. Yeah, Jesus, I'll give, you, <clears throat> I'll give you Sunday morning from, I don't know, if I'm gracious, it'll be from 9 to, and Brandon is preaches long, because, uh, so I, you know, I may, I'm really debating on going to the other church that only has a 25-minute sermon, so just saying, because I've put my time in and I'm ready to go. We chuckle, but it's true. And it's sad. No, you don't come to hear me. I pray to God you don't, because I'm not your God, nor should I be. We don't want to get trapped in this idea of the cult of personality where we come only because we love to hear that specific preacher preach, and on the days that he or she is not there, then we just won't show up. Shame on us. We should be coming <clears throat> not to receive, but to give. Our sacrifices of praise, everything we have, this, it shouldn't just be a two to three hour slot on a Sunday morning. It's a 24-7 thing. And again, in Matthew 7, that's why Jesus says, there, on that day, on that day of judgment, the very final day, there will be many who stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do that in your name? And I'll look at them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Why? Because those people were only given a portion or a part of who they were. They weren't surrendered completely. Jesus, I put my time in. I served at the soup kitchen. I helped patch that wall, rake my neighbor's yard. I took that person to the doctor or the hospital I appreciate you doing that, but I still didn't get to know you because you were more consumed with you and what you could get out of it than you were with sacrificing for me and getting no glory this side of heaven. I want to be one of those that stand before the throne of God someday and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
but I live every day, not in fear, but in the conscious awareness that what I do this side of heaven counts every single bit of it. And the only thing that's going to matter in the end is what I did with what God entrusted to me through Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how many awards I've gained, how much money I've earned, how, many, how much status I've achieved. All that's going to matter on that day is that I serve God and others well. Even if nobody else saw it or understood it. Our worship team's going to come forward. They're going to close this out. I guess this is a takeaway from Esther. If there's anything to be taken away is, what are you persistent about? Are you persistent for the right things? Do you know the will of God? And if not, why not? You have no excuse not to know the purposes and the will of God. You who live in the most free nation on the face of the earth, who, have, who has knowledge and information oozing out of every portal in the world at your fingertips. The device you hold in your hand can give you a million different versions of Scripture in your language. But if you're not reading it, you're not going to have a clue what's expected or what, what God has done for you, what he expects of you, and how he wants to lead you and how much he loves you. If you're not praying to him regularly, and I'm not talking about two seconds before your mealtime. I'm talking about on your face in the throne room of grace with confidence that he hears each and every word you pray, not just for you, but interceding for others. You're not going to understand the will of God. If you don't commune together with other believers, you're not going to understand what heaven's going to be like because it's going to be communion together with God for eternity. And you may scoff at that. You may think, gosh, this has been such a stupid sermon. You may. But I pray to God something has pierced you enough to say, I'm making a decision today. It's going to be an eternal decision because there is no middle ground. It's either all in or all out. If you need somebody to pray with you this morning, if you're not sure where you stand on these issues, you come to my right, your left, there'll be somebody willing to pray with you. If you need to pray and settle things with God by yourself, my left, your right. Please, I think I've asked this a million times since I've been here, don't leave this place without saying, yes, I'm all in, or I'm all out. I pray it's not all out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for... It sounds... Honestly, God, it sounds so pithy to say thank you for Jesus. Because we say it often and we can become numb to the sacrifice he made on the cross. Even in the midst of an Easter season, we can become numb to it because we, we do it by rote. We, we, we know the basic premise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if not, we just, we know about this guy called Jesus. 
But God, help us to not just know about him, but to know him intimately. Forgive us where we've steered clear of the gospel and the good news, even when it's been offensive. Let us soak it all in. I pray, God, that it would transform our lives. I pray that there would be a hunger and a thirst for righteousness among this body today. That these people here wouldn't just walk out the door having checked a time card of spirituality and gone on to the next event in life. But God, that they would leave totally, completely transformed by the renewing of their minds and their faith. Heavenly Father, I pray these things. Holy Spirit, do your work. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.